Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm Jonathan Malaberti. So sorry for the delay on Rolling Stones Part 7. This past month, I've uh, had to finish my master's degree, so I was really busy uh, writing essays, doing projects, and finishing up my thesis. Pretty much everything else in my life took a back seat. But we're back, and I'm really, really excited. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite periods in Rolling Stones history. I think probably the most interesting, uh, 1967, 1968, 1969. These will be the next couple of episodes. It's really the fall of Brian Jones, the end of his participation in the band, and the rise of the Rolling Stones that we come to know as a 70s rock and roll band. Uh, there's a lot of you know heartbreaking moments. There's a lot of funny stories, uh, and I think it's going to be interesting all the way through. And I'm not going to make you all wait any longer, so here we go, The Rolling Stones Part 7. Keith Richards said of the year 1967, quote, 1967 was the watershed year, the year the seams gave way. There was that feeling that trouble was coming, which it did later, unquote. For Rolling Stones fans, 1967 would be defined as a year that the band really went off course musically, and also the year that the Stones almost ended their careers behind bars, thanks to a couple major drug busts. For the band, the music that they released that year would probably be as far away from their blues roots as they would ever get. I would say that some of their best and some of their worst pop music was probably released in 67. In January of 67, just as history's most psychedelic year began, the Rolling Stones released one of their most important pop albums of the decade, Between the Buttons. For a few months, the Stones had been in and out of the studio recording songs for what would become Between the Buttons. The first song recorded for the album was in August of 66 in California, uh, and they wrapped up the album around Christmas time of 66. The album was special. The Stones sort of lost their backbeat. Instead, a lot of the songs they recorded uh, were these kind of dainty ballads with lyrics that sounded kind of like Bob Dylan, sound effects that sounded kind of like the Beatles or the Beach Boys. Other songs were just pure classic Stones. A week before the album dropped, the Rolling Stones released their support singles, and these songs gave the Beatles a run for their money. Let's Spend the Night Together and Ruby Tuesday. Ruby Tuesday was entirely written by Keith Richards, and he got a good amount of help in the studio from Brian Jones. Brian contributed that key recorder part and a little bit on the piano. Keith, who wasn't much of a lyricist, wrote all the lyrics to this one. Uh, they were all about his breakup with Linda Keith, which we discussed last episode. The recorder on this one isn't the only weird instrument on the song. Bill and Keith both play bass parts on the song simultaneously. They play a double bass, which is like a cello-looking thing. Uh, and Bill Wyman does the fingering on the neck while Keith Richards at the same time was uh, strumming them with the bow. It was really a group effort to get that bass track. Jagger came in just to do the vocal part. He said in an interview in the 1990s, quote, Ruby Tuesday is a wonderful song. It's just a nice melody, really, and a lovely lyric, neither of which I wrote, but I always enjoy singing it, unquote. The other A-side was Let's Spend the Night Together, my favorite Stone song from this period by far, and it's arguably their first psychedelic masterpiece. The song was written mainly by Jagger, who probably wrote it about Marianne Faithful. In fact, Marianne says the song was written after their first night together. 
The song was really aided along by the fantastic arranging and production. Key to the sound is the main piano part, played by Jack Nietzsche. Charlie adds a thrilling drum part, and uh, Jagger's vocals are exceptional on this song. Brian Jones actually adds an organ part, and Keith plays bass and guitar, and an additional piano part on the track. The song is beautifully produced. There's there's so much buildup, especially when the piano, bass, and guitar are building up that tension at the beginning of the song, only to be released by the entry of Charlie's drum roll. The song also includes the sound of police clubs as percussion, which uh, is actually an accident, because when the band was recording Let's Spend the Night Together, a few cops came into the studio. By this time, the Stones were openly partying while working, so there were joints mixed in with the cigarettes, some booze, a couple uppers and downers lying around, and a whole bunch of other X-rated stuff that, you know, probably wouldn't please a cop. Uh, when the cops came in, Andrew Luke Oldham was in the engineering room, and he knew that they needed to be distracted somehow. So uh, he asked if the cops wanted to record a percussion part with their clubs, uh, and the cops, I guess, thought it was pretty cool, so they went along with it. And by the time, you know, they went into the studio, all the drugs were out of view, and the club part that they added actually ended up on the final cut. It was the lyrics uh, of Let's Spend the Night Together that were really key to the song's fame. Two days after Let's Spend the Night Together and Ruby Tuesday were released, the Stones did the Ed Sullivan Show to promote their upcoming albums and new singles. Ed Sullivan was very conservative, a moderate guy, and he felt that the lyrics to Let's Spend the Night Together were far too suggestive for his audience, and he demanded that Jagger sing uh, Let's Spend Some Time Together instead. Now, the band was livid about this. They couldn't believe how prude Sullivan was being. But as they had drifted towards the pop center, they realized that they actually needed to comply. Andrew Lug Oldham remembers, quote, Now, though, they were inviting the world to spend the night together from a much higher profile and would suffer the consequences. Eighteen months earlier, we would have told Ed to go fuck himself and walked off the show. But now it's show business, and this moment we're at the top, we all have something to lose. A decision had to be made on the spot, in public. I asked the band, do you want to stay or walk? The next thing I knew, Mick was rolling his eyes singing, let's spend some time together, unquote. Famously, Mick Jagger rolled his eyes on camera as he sang, let's spend some time together, which was at least somewhat of a rock and roll compromise. The moment was symbolic of a band that was far outpacing what the media thought was acceptable behavior. Interestingly, we think of Let's Spend the Night Together as being really elementary. It's hard to imagine a world where that phrase is considered offensive or too explicit. But the song was actually banned from the radio in a lot of places, and in the stations that it wasn't banned, this, the word night was bleeped out. Uh, nowadays, some pop lyrics make Let's Spend the Night Together seem like literal child's play, but even as recently as 2006, the Stones have had to refrain from singing this song. When they first toured China in 06, the Chinese government instructed them not to sing it on the tour at all because the lyrics were too suggestive. On January 20th, 1967, the Rolling Stones released their seventh studio album, Between the Buttons. The album was not very Stones. In fact, the trademark guitar weaving sound the band had developed through 1966 had pretty much evaporated on this album. Brian Jones only played guitar on one of the tw album's 12 tracks. But what Brian didn't contribute in guitar parts, he made up for with his role as a multi-instrumentalist. 
Between the buttons was peak Brian Jones. He played organ, piano, recorder, accordion, dulcimer, harmonica, kazoo. Brian even added horn parts, playing the trumpet, tuba, saxophone, and trombone. But Brian wasn't the only one that made this album good. Keith's guitar playing is awesome on a lot of these tracks, like Connection, All Sold Out, Yesterday's Papers, and I love Jagger's impression of Bob Dylan uh, on the song Who's Been Sleeping Here. On the song My Obsession, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys was actually present when the song was recorded, and I think it remains his favorite Stone song to this day. Overall, I think it's just a fun, solid pop album. Definitely not their best, but it's really good. In general, I think the lyrics have a poppy feel. They're not too trippy, but they're definitely a little more advanced than even what they were uh, on Aftermath. And something in mixed lyrics was really connecting with a young British audience, and he was becoming something of a spokesman for his generation. Charlie Watts said of Jagger's lyrics, quote, That's what he's doing, really. He's just criticizing things through his songs. It works sometimes. Sometimes you think, how did he put that word in? What's that doing there? But it works most of the time. He just comments on things, which is nice, unquote. Except for one, the final track of the album, the song called uh, Something Happened to Me Yesterday, uh, where the lyrics are very psychedelic and not at all subtle. If anyone was wondering if the Rolling Stones had taken the new wonder drug LSD, this song really spells it out for them. The song is this kind of jumpy, jubilant, campy song that features both Mick and Keith on lead vocals, the first time Keith ever had a lead vocal. Brian plays uh, the horns on the album, probably his most obvious musical contribution on the album. Uh, The lyrics talk about the bizarre feeling after one takes LSD. At one point during a musical break, Charlie Watts even says, quote, what kind of joint is this, quote, in the song? The song was so obvious that everyone listening knew exactly what they were talking about. Though Mick still said about the song, quote, I'll leave it up to the individual imagination as to what happened, unquote. Even the cover of Between the Buttons was meant to tell listeners about the new habits of the band. The front cover is this kind of blurry, trippy photo of the band, taken early one January morning by Jared Mankiewicz. The photo shoot was a typical example of Brian Jones's behavior in the band at the time. I mean, by this point, it was somewhat surprising that Brian showed up on time at all, but he was refusing to co- cooperate the entire shoot. Instead of getting his photo taken, he'd walk off, he'd hide his face, or he'd read a newspaper. Mankiewicz said of the shoot, quote, We endlessly found ourselves working in spite of Brian. During the Between the Buttons session, he continuously tried to screw up the pictures. He was hiding behind his collar. He'd bought himself a newspaper and he buried himself in it. He was just not cooperating. I wouldn't say Brian was trying to ruin the session, but he was so often being difficult, unquote. The final product makes it clear that uh, Brian was, in fact, being fussy that shoot. You have Bill, Charlie, Mick, and Keith all generally looking at or near the camera without smiles, kind of the same expression. Then in the middle, you have Brian Jones, ducked down, eyes closed, hair flying all over the place, and grinning. Whatever Brian was trying to achieve there, it probably worked. I mean, when you look at the cover of Between the Buttons, your eyes go directly to Brian Jones. Not to Mick, not to Keith, but to Brian. And I think to Brian, that was more important than anything. Despite Brian's unreliability, 
his status in the band was still surprisingly strong in 1967. It wasn't until later where he took a nosedive. Sure, there were moments on the road where he became the butt of the joke, and he was skewered by Mick and Keith, but when Acid came into the picture, he reclaimed his edge both musically and socially. Not only this, but his attendance problems and erratic behavior were somewhat equaled out by his musical contribution on Between the Buttons, and his popularity among Stones fans was still very strong. It was Brian who made most of the headlines in the papers for his clothing, his girlfriend, and the nights out on the town with other famous people, not Mick or Keith. To many Stones fans, Brian was the whole band. He also enjoyed strong friendships in the band, especially with uh, Charlie and Bill, and for the time being, Keith. When the acid period hit, Brian and Keith were the only two Stones to jump into it with both feet, leaving Charlie and Bill in the sober camp and Mick somewhere in between. Keith, who had just bought this beautiful home called Redlands, actually spent most of his time at Brian's house, hanging with Brian and Anita. Brian and Keith enjoyed the whole acid experience, and when they weren't on the road, they really rekindled their friendship, like the Edith Grove days, sitting around strumming guitars, listening to records. Keith remembers this period, saying, quote, Me and Brian had a lot of fun, becoming friends again, getting stoned together. It was wonderful at first. So I started to move in with him and Anita. I just hung out as a guest and got a ringside seat to the world that Anita attracted around her, which was an exceptional gang of people. I used to walk back home to pick up a clean shirt at first, and then I just stopped going home." Unquote. But Keith's constant presence at Brian's house was about more than just rekindling his friendship with his old Edith Grove buddy. He went on, quote, "...in those days, I had nothing to do with Anita, strictly speaking. I was fascinated by her from what I thought was a safe distance. I thought certainly that Brian had got very lucky. I could never figure out how he got his hands on her. She was an extremely bright woman. That's one of the reasons she sparked me. Let alone, she was so entertaining and such a great beauty to look at. Brian would crash out sometimes, and Anita and I would look at each other. But that's Brian and his old lady, and that's it. Hands off. The idea of stealing a band member's woman was not on my agenda." Unquote. The romantic tension that was building between Keith and Anita may have been unknown to Brian. Or maybe he just shrugged it off. Brian was still pretty out there, and he would kind of oscillate between, you know, confident and, you know, sociability and extreme insecurity and kind of locking himself away in his own mind. Usually, this was brought on by too much LSD. He would often have these vendettas. I mean, at this time, he was very paranoid about Mick and Andrew Lou Goldham, and he thought that Mick Jagger was secretly conspiring to limit his power in the band and getting kicked out and all that stuff. And his friendship with Keith was kind of a way of holding on to power in the band. Besides, Brian clearly wasn't worried about losing Anita, or else he wouldn't have treated her the way that he did. Brian was extremely violent towards her, and the two of them would often explode in fits of rage. More often than not, Anita would get some punches in, and Brian would show up to a session with a bloody lip or a black eye, having been kicked around by Anita the night before. The beginning of 1967 saw a lull in the Stones' touring schedule. They had a few months off in the winter and early spring, and they definitely took advantage of it. They'd go out to the Bag of Nails Club, a nightclub where pretty much every 60s pop star hung out. It was the coolest spot in town. I mean, the Bag of Nails is where much of the pop world saw Jimi Hendrix play live for the first time. On January 11, 1967, Hendrix wowed a star-studded audience. Bill Wyman of the Stones, Paul McCartney and Ringo of the Beatles, 
John Entwistle and Pete Townsend of The Who, Clapton from Cream, Eric Burden from The Animals, Jeff Beck, Denny Lane, and Donovan were all there in the audience to see the new American rock and roll god in the flesh. After this, anyone who was anyone was talking about Hendrix and their planning their next trip to go see him play at the Bag of Nails or another nightclub in London. Suddenly, all of London was kind of illuminated by this youth culture. Young people dressed however they wanted, you know, beads, scarves, funky sunglasses, whatever. And there was this release of that kind of conservative hang-up that had been casting rock and roll stars as dirty, long-haired, freakish bums, you know. Gone were the days that you could just kick someone out of a restaurant or a hotel for having long hair. The tide just turned against that sort of thinking, and the young people almost fully took over the culture. Mick Jagger said of this period, quote, It felt like an explosive moment. People felt this sensation that something was going on that had never happened before, and they'd been waiting to happen, unquote. This was also the period where drugs became central to the Rolling Stones in a way that they never really had been before. Even Mick, who was up until this point somewhat conservative with his drug use, became a full-blown convert to the Church of LSD, telling anyone who would listen about the benefits of acid and how the world would be a peaceful place if everyone did it, blah, blah, blah. Jagger said, quote, We all smoke dope. I mean, except for Bill. But it was pretty innocent stuff. And then you get more and more different drugs coming in. LSD, cocaine, heroin, those types of things. And those drugs were a great interest to the general public and the press, unquote. It's true. Back then, the drugs were so new and taboo to the public that there was this obsession with who was taking what drug, mainly pushed by the vicious tabloids in Britain. That February, an article came out in the salacious and often fabricated News of the World, alleging that Mick had dropped LSD at one of the members of the Moody Blues' home. Nobody really knows if it's true. The news of the world isn't exactly careful with the facts. It could have been a rumor. It could have been that Mick was seen at this house. Uh, the most common theory is that um, Brian Jones was either overheard or he bragged to the wrong person about his drug use at one of his favorite pubs, and the journalist just swapped the name Brian with Mick Jagger. Uh, this theory is believed by Jagger himself, Either way, Mick had a pretty good case to sue the News of the World for libel, stating, quote, I'm shocked that a responsible newspaper like the News of the World can publish such a defamatory article about me. I want to make it clear that this picture of me is misleading and untrue, and therefore the only way left for me to prevent this libel being repeated is for me to ask my lawyer to take legal action in the high court immediately, unquote. Like I said, Mick actually had a pretty good case. Until the following week, when his legal problems became so big that they threatened the existence of the Rolling Stones. On February 11, 1967, a few of the Stones decided to have a little party after a day in the studio. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Marianne Faithful, Robert Frazier, and a few other people headed over to Redlands, Keith's home, to hang out. Brian was working on a film soundtrack he'd been busy with, and he was planning on stopping by later. Around 11 p.m., George Harrison and Patty Boyd showed up, and the group partied all night, until the sun rose, when Patty Boyd and George Harrison left and everyone else scattered throughout Redlands. Unbeknownst to the Stones, uh, an informant had tipped off the news of the world about a drug party happening at Keith Richards' home. The next morning, the group gathered and decided to spend the day taking LSD. Mick Jagger remembers, quote, That day we went off on this expedition. We took acid, and it took a long while to start, as it always does. 
We met someone who was milking a cow. I don't like milk very much. And they said, oh, m come on, Mick, try the milk. And when you're on acid, you know, everything's different. I still didn't like the milk. I mean, acid, fresh, cow, everything, no. And we walked back down to the car and went to Redlands, by which time it was evening, unquote. Keith continues Jagger's story, saying, quote, So we're all coming down, and it's a very smooth come down, and we're just sitting around smoking a couple joints, and then bang, bang, bang on the door, unquote. There was so much confusion in that moment. I mean, they were all really high, and Keith thought the police looking through the window was an elderly fan looking for an autograph. But more and more knocks kept thumping through the walls and windows of Redlands, causing Keith to finally open the door. That was when he was shown a warrant by the police. The police entered and famously saw Marianne rolled up in a Moroccan rug. The tabloids would take this as some sort of evidence of a crazy sex party, but in reality, she just showered and didn't want to put her clothes on quite yet. The police also found a whole bunch of stuff, pretty minor by the Stone standards, a few amphetamine pills in Mick Jagger's pocket, a pipe with some weed resin on it, and a few other minor things. No hard drugs or LSD were found, but in 1967, what the Stones had was enough to put them behind bars. They were screwed. After hours of searching Keith's Redlands home, the police finally left. When Brian called saying that he and Anita were on their way, Keith said to Brian, quote, don't bother, we've been busted, unquote. This was a huge problem for the band. This was during the days of heavy sentences for even the most minor drug offenses. And a bust this high profile was unheard of. Jagger was being charged with possession, and Richards was being charged with providing a haven for drug use and possession as well. A sentence that could land him up to 10 years in prison. The band needed a solid legal defense and aggressive publicity team, none of which were going to be provided by Andrew Luke Oldham, who escaped the country to avoid arrest. Alan Klein stepped in and managed the situation, while Mick, Keith, and Brian flew to Morocco to escape the press coverage of their drug bust. Bill Wyman said, quote, We just kind of thought it was the end of the band, really. We never knew who was going to be in or out of jail, or whether there was a future and all that, unquote. Mick Jagger said, quote, Emotionally speaking, it was very difficult. They thought we were going to be put away and never make a record again for years and years. People wanted to have prison sentences. It wasn't just a fine or a rap across the knuckles, unquote. This was the atmosphere that surrounded the band for the next few months. Mick and Keith were fearing for their lives because they thought they'd be imprisoned. Mick was pissed at Brian and blamed a lot of this on him. And Brian was getting higher and higher and in turn more and more paranoid, all while putting himself and the band at more risk. There was some disappointment coming from Charlie and Bill, who felt that their careers might be ruined because of the stupidity of Brian, Mick, and Keith. And to top it all off, their manager completely bailed on them just when they needed him most. In the spring of 1967, the Stones were in hell. All they could do was wait until their fate was decided by an establishment who saw them as a threat to the public order. In pretty much every way, the future of the Rolling Stones was in question. While awaiting trial, Mick, Brian, and Keith, along with some friends and girlfriends, were cleared to travel. They did so to escape the bad publicity and possibility of future doxing by police. They wanted to go to Morocco, so Brian, Keith, Anita, and some others drove through Europe, and Mick decided to meet them there by flying. Brian and Keith started in Paris, where they were almost arrested again for failing to pay their hotel bill on time. From Paris, they drove through the French countryside to the Spanish coast. 
Brian ner was nervously chain-smoking cigarettes and weed the whole time, and by the time they got to the south of France, he could hardly breathe. And he told the group that he had to go to the hospital. At the hospital, he was diagnosed with pneumonia, and he had to stay in Toulouse, France, uh, for five days. It was decided that the group would drive to Spain and then go to Morocco, and Brian would fly directly after he was cleared. Apparently, Brian sensed the writing on the wall by this point, and gave instructions to one of their friends not to let Keith and Anita hang out alone. Unfortunately for Brian, between the car ride from Barcelona to Valencia, Keith and Anita finally hooked up and started their decade-long romance. Keith was shy and said it was actually Anita who made the first move. He said, quote, I have never put the make on a girl in my life. I just don't know how to do it. My instincts are always to leave it to the woman. So Anita made the first move. I just could not put the make on my friend's girl, even though he'd become an asshole to Anita too. And we got closer and closer and suddenly, without her old man, she had the balls to break the ice and say fuck it, unquote. Keith and Anita pretty much played boyfriend and girlfriend until they got down to Morocco where they had to deal with Brian, and they both knew that their fling could destroy the band, so they decided to just go back to normal when Brian arrived in Tangier the next day. For a few days it worked, but Brian was in rough shape. He was still pretty sickly, and to recover he decided to just take acid all day. So half of the time he was euphoric, and the other half he was, you know, a paranoid mess in a prison of his own mind. Not exactly a good companion. Brian also acted particularly violently towards Anita this trip beating her up several times, and her beating him up in return. Just really abhorrent, abusive behavior from Brian, just indefensible in every way. The situation came to a boiling point when Brian, a drunken, tripping mess, tried to get Anita to join him in a foursome with two Moroccan prostitutes. She refused, and Brian freaked out. He started throwing stuff at her, he insulted her, intimidated her, and finally attacked her, apparently beating her up so badly that Anita was in fear for her life. Anita responded with some punches of her own before she ran to Keith's room. Even for Brian, who had a reputation for being a violent, manipulative, mean, narcissistic, and all-around horrible person, this was a new low. When Anita got to Keith, he begged her to leave Morocco and ditch Brian with him not caring about the consequences. Anita agreed, and they planned their escape. They decided to tell Brian that journalists were on their way to the hotel to get the scoop on the stones, so they all had to leave for the day. Brian went off to explore some parts of Morocco with a guide, while Mick, Marianne, Keith, and Anita all abandoned Brian and left Morocco altogether. Anita and Keith went to Paris, where their relationship finally began. After a day out, Brian returned to find that everyone had left, Nothing from the hotel, lobby, no note, no messages, not a word. He began to panic, realizing that he'd been abandoned, and he began to spiral into a nervous episode. After a few days, Brian Jones ended up in Paris. He called his friend to pick him up at the airport, but something seemed off about him. Brian was always so meticulous about his dress. He had a spark and energy to him, but Brian looked terrible. His clothes were in tatters, and he looked dirty, worn out, and his eyes were red from crying. Brian didn't even know what had happened yet. He didn't know the extent of it. He could only assume that Keith and Anita were together, but he had hope that this was all going to blow over. But he knew that his band had finally sent the message that had been in the air for a long time. They weren't going to put up with him anymore. Brian hit rock bottom. He was truly defeated. From that point on, Brian Jones was never the same. 
and he would never reclaim his position in the band. In the summer of 1967, the trial of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards began. The outpouring of support from their fans and fellow musicians was incredible. There were constant protests outside of the courthouse, but much of public opinion and the establishment was against them. Mick and Keith both acted quite differently in front of the judge. Mick was polite, humble, and respectful. Keith was short and often disrespectful. In a telling exchange between Keith and the judge, there are definitely some feathers rustled. The judge says, quote, In the ordinary course of events, wouldn't you expect a young woman to be embarrassed if she had nothing on but a fur rug in the presence of eight men? Unquote. Keith, quote, No, not at all. Unquote. Judge, quote, You regard that as quite normal? Unquote. Keith, quote, We are not old men. We're not worried about petty morals. Unquote. Keith's remark probably added to his punishment. He was given one whole year in jail. Mick was given three months. When the sentences were handed out, there was just a shock in the courtroom, and each of them were escorted out. Jagger was brought immediately to Lewis Prison, where he was booked and locked up. Keith was brought to the much worse Wormwood Scrubs, an old prison in West London. Both Mick and Keith went to sleep that night in prison, thinking their careers were over, thinking they'd lost everything, thinking that everything they did was no longer worth it. Their long hair, their blues music, performing, the apartment in Edith Grove, the tours, it all just led them to prison. They weren't pop stars anymore. They were criminals. Mick, feeling sad and lonely, started writing the song 2,000 Light Years From Home that night, which is how far he felt from his house in Chelsea. Little did they know, while they were sitting in jail, there was a massive backlash against the judge's decision. The editor for the conservative newspaper, The Times of London, William Rees-Mogg, heavily criticized the sentence as an overreaction and out of step with standard legal practice. He said that, quote, Jagger received a more severe sentence than would have been thought proper for any purely anonymous young man, unquote. The sentences seemed crazy, even to conservatives like Rees-Mogg, and suddenly public support was shifting heavily. The sentences were appealed immediately, and as the cases went through the court system and appeals were in process, Jagger and Richards were given conditional discharges. The next day, they were released from prison, and just a few weeks later, their sentences were overturned, and they were cleared of all charges due to lack of evidence. The 1967 Redlands drug bust was a huge moment for rock and roll. First of all, it was somewhat of a landmark case that tested the public's tolerance of drugs. It gave rock stars somewhat of a breather, though a drug charge could still be extremely inconvenient and costly. Jail was now less likely. Rock stars had to be judged like everyone else who had a drug charge, and with the growing frequency of drug use, it was becoming less and less risky. It also felt like a major victory for the youth, the rebels who were fighting the grown-up order. They actually won. Within the band, the Redlands bust and trial was so high profile that it almost instantly changed the face of the Rolling Stones. Seeing Mick and Keith together being dragged through the court process, the trial, the newspapers, it made them seem like heroes. It also made them seem like the face of the counterculture and really the only important members of the Rolling Stones. For a long time, Keith had been very much a secondary figure in the Stones. He wrote the songs with Mick, but he was painfully shy and he didn't have a stage presence. 
The Redlands bus made fans in the UK all but forget about Brian Jones as one of the co-leaders of the band, and instead, Mick and Keith, the Glimmer Twins, came into being. Mick and Keith were the ones together on stage. They were two sides of the same coin, just as they were in the papers and in the courtroom. Most importantly, it made the Stones public enemy number one, an image they wouldn't shake until the 1980s. The Stones would deal with near-constant drug busts and police uh, harassment, and legal problems for the remainder of their career. The Redlands bust wouldn't be the last time that the band's survival was at stake because of a drug bust, either. It was just the first time. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Next episode, we're going to talk about Brian Jones's condition after the Anita situation, the recording of their very much hated Satanic Majesty's request, and a new era for the Rolling Stones and their music. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, until next time, listen to the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm.